This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. Over the past few years, we've started to put up our Christmas lighting earlier and earlier. I think part of the reason we do it is because it's such a pain to do, and we want to get as much enjoyment as we can out of it. So back you know, years ago, we would put up lights at a more traditional time, maybe just after Thanksgiving. But in the last three years, we started to do it the first week of November. In fact, on several occasions, we did it on November 1st. So let me ask you, is that too early? Oh, dear heavens. I thought the choir would support me on this, but... Now, all that talk about illumination, all that talk about illumination got me thinking. I think it's possible to have illumination and yet not light. What do I mean by that? Well, our nation, culturally, is just a wash in what you might call illumination. However, with all the lights we got at the same time, things, spiritually speaking at least, are quite dark by comparison. Spiritually speaking, if we were to assess the climate in which we now live, you would say that spiritually speaking, our day and our age, is the equivalent of twilight. It seems like the shadow lands, to borrow a phrase. Now, on the occasion of Christ's birth, it wasn't much different. In fact, it was worse. If you and I are living at the equivalent of spiritual twilight, when Jesus came to his own, that was the equivalent of spiritual midnight. It could not have been darker, spiritually speaking, in the region of Israel than it was at this time. Now think back. What was going on? It's a bold claim to make. It was like midnight. So think back. What was going on in first century Israel? As you connect the dots with the history, what's going on? Well, let's start from a geopolitical standpoint. Let's start from a geopolitical standpoint. Now Israel was a nation. Yes? Yes. But were they governing themselves? No. Who was oppressing them? Rome. This was a nation that God had given their own land, their own place, their own capital, their own seat, right there by the Mediterranean Sea, but they were not governing themselves because God had brought in or had allowed to bring in the Roman Empire, which was at that time oppressing them. The Jews in the first century, when Christ was born, they were living under the iron boot of the Roman Empire. Each day they woke up, there was foreign and pagan leadership ruling over them locally. Now, you say, all right, all right, all right. So there was bad Romans. But, you know, the Jews, surely, surely they had their own good local leaders. I mean, they were probably all railed against Rome, right? But they must have had good local leaders. Maybe there was a really nice, like, I don't know, vassal king that Rome had given them. A really nice grandfatherly figure who took care of them and shepherded them under his wings. Do you think that's the way it worked? No, they had a king. They had a, a local king, so to speak, and his name was what? Herod. They had a king. So you had the Roman Empire on the one hand that they were under the boot of, and they had a local king. He was actually an Edomite, but his name was Herod, and he was just the worst. King Herod was the worst of the worst of the worst. This was a man who, when he heard that there was a threat against his power, the coming of a child would be born. Remember the wise men came and reported the star had come, and Herod gets wind of this. And what does he do? At the prospect that a child might come to displace him, what does he do? He sends out the edict to go and kill all the kids under a certain age. This was a guy so, so wicked. Some of you have probably heard the story that when he got old and sickly and was going to die, remember what he did? He had the noblemen of Jerusalem, all the civic leaders and such, gather together. And he gave an edict. And he said, on the day I die, when I pass, I want you to kill all of those guys too. He told the soldiers to kill all the civic leaders and the like, you know, rotary from the first century. Take out all those guys. Now, why would he do that 
at the moment he was going to die. Yeah, was, the idea was this. He wanted someone crying when he was gone, even if they were crying for someone else. Even if they were crying for these other guys, he wanted tears to fill the land upon the moment of his own death. That's the sort of guy that was the king. I mean, we think of Caesar. We go, wow, living under the boot of Caesar has got to be terrible. Well, it didn't get any better in the local leadership that they had at that time. Now, so you say to yourself, okay, okay, okay. So that is dark. Having Caesar, having Herod, yeah, that's pretty bad. But surely, surely there must have been some good spiritual religious leaders, right? Surely, if you were a Jew, you were like, well, on the plus side, you know, we got Caesar and we got Herod, but at least I can go to the synagogue and just let my hair down, and I'm around people who care for me, and we got some really great religious leaders, some spiritual, you know, saints who shepherd us along, right? Is that the way that it worked? Not so much. What was the name of the spiritual leaders in first century Israel? The Pharisees. You know, that's the sort of word you're free to boo and hiss when you hear it. The Pharisees, they were the worst of the worst of the worst. When it came to the religious leadership, these were the very ones that Jesus called out as a brood of vipers. These are the very ones, I think it's in John chapter 11, that he identified as having been of their father, the devil. So if you were a Jew in first century Israel, you had Caesar, you had Roman centurions walking down the street, you had King Herod slaughtering babies, and even when you went to church at the time, to the synagogue or the temple, you had money changers in the temple and you had Pharisees there in the synagogue. You had nowhere really to go. This was a darkened time. From one part of your society to the other part, this was a darkened, a wicked, and a depraved time. And it isn't to that that darkened environment that Jesus is born. It is into that darkened environment with a terrible leadership and with faith at an all-time low that Jesus is born. As we said earlier, it wasn't just twilight in Israel. It was midnight, and you need to appreciate that darkness. Otherwise, you won't appreciate today's text. All right, I'm going to return to verse 12 and then just work our way. It's not a huge passage, but I'm going to go back to verse 12. We'll read that, and then we'll kind of work our way through the bounds of this short passage. So verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. All right, let's stop there. So far this morning, we've been making the case that first century Israel was a dark and a sketchy place. Well, here in verse 12, we see proof of the darkness right here. Let me ask you a question. Outside of Jesus, Choir, you can help me out with this too. Outside of Jesus, who was the most godly man in all of Israel outside of Jesus at this time? John the Baptist. Are we sure? Yes, we're sure. And we're sure we're sure because Jesus would later say that there was no one born among women who was greater than John the Baptist. So you have this guy, John the Baptist, this paragon of virtue. The closest thing that first century Israel had to a prophet at this day was John the Baptist. He was a godly man. He was a devout man. He preached a faithful message of repentance. He was devout. He was upright. And he was a model of faithfulness for all to see. Now, let's go back to those Jewish leaders for a moment. You remember the Pharisees? Did they like John? Not so much. They did not care for John, and neither did much of anybody else. In verse 12, we see this, that John is thrown into prison. In verse 12, we read that John the Baptist, the most godly man outside of Christ, the most wonderful man, the guy you want to bring home for dinner, just the most wonderful, gracious guy on the planet outside of Christ, had been thrown into prison. More proof of the darkness. When darkness seeks to quench and put out light, 
A light as bright and shining and gracious as John the Baptist. You know that something is wrong. So verse 12, we read, John the Baptist, he's thrown in prison, and the days to follow, he would be beheaded for the sake of a dinner party. John the Baptist, this beacon of light and spiritual darkness, was disregarded by his peers, and he was snuffed out with great prejudice. Now, why did they take out John? Well, that's outside the scope of what we're looking at this morning, but I'll say this. It was for the same reason that they would take out Christ. Because spiritually depraved, darkened hearts hate sources of light. Spiritually depraved, darkened hearts in the first century, the 21st century, do not care to have bright light shined on their nature and upon their deeds. All right. Speaking of Christ, or thinking of Christ, let's, let's see what he's going to do next in verses 13 through 16. So verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. It's right there by the shores of Galilee. It's in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, They've seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. You know, at Christmas time, we usually just think of the manger. You know, you think of the cute baby in the manger and like, we don't fast forward so often to Easter, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But let's consider his rejection just for a moment. Have you ever wondered how the Jews could have rejected their own Messiah? If you think back, remember the Jews had been looking forward to this guy for a really long time. Really, across the whole breadth and scope of their history, there was prophecies that said that a guy is going to show up, a guy is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to bring healing in his wings. He will be the consolation of Israel. He is the one that all of Jewish history was looking forward to. The expectation of this one fills the pages and prophecies of Scripture. The Messiah would come. And yet, when he did, what was the response? They killed him. You ever wondered how? How can this be? What reasons could they have for killing their own Messiah? Well, there's a number of reasons. And among the reasons why the Jews rejected Christ as their Messiah was because he didn't do the things that they thought he ought to do. Jesus did not do the things that they thought he should do. He did not go to the places they thought he should go. He did not hang out with the people they thought he should hang out with. He defied expectations. Even as he fulfilled prophecies, even as he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, he denied their expectations, their traditions of what they thought he might or might not do. For example, we see this in verses 13 through 16. Here, in this text, at the start of his ministry, we're only four chapters deep in Matthew, at the start of his ministry... He doesn't go up to a tall mountain to sit up top and wait for people to come to him, right? Bowing and scraping on their knees all the way to the top. He doesn't do that. He didn't go to Jerusalem and set up shop there as they would have expected. I mean, after all, that's where the temple was, right? When the Messiah comes, he'll go to Jerusalem. That was the expectation. But Isaiah, 700 years earlier, said, no, no dice, no deal. He's not going to do that. In fact, he's going to go to some of the most rinky-dink tribes in the areas that no one goes. He's going to go up to Zebulun and Naphtali, to these regions off to the north in Galilee. And if you were a first century Jew, you would have said, no, 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 no. When the Messiah shows up, he's not going there. When the Messiah shows up, he's going to Jerusalem, or he's not going anywhere. But he's definitely not going to go up to Zebulun and Naphtali. Those places are pagan. 
That's where the Gentiles live. The Jewish Messiah, he's not going to go to this place. In fact, if you remember, even Christ's own disciples kind of rejected, at least at first, the idea that his origins would be from somewhere off in northern Israel. Bartholomew, one of his disciples, was told that this Messiah has come and he came out of Nazareth. And what did Bartholomew say? He said, no, not at all. It can't be. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To this day, Nazareth, it's the least, numerically, the least Jewish city in all of Israel. To the north, this was not a bastion of virtue. It was a bastion of vice. And so the people looked to the north and they said, that's bad territory. And yet here in Matthew 4, at the start of his ministry, he didn't like wait till halfway and go, well, I guess I'll go up there for a bit. At the start of his ministry, Matthew 4, instead of marching into Jerusalem as they might have expected in verses 13 through 16, it says he went to Capernaum, which is in the tribal region of Zebulun. It's actually in Naphtali, but Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was odd. Again, we don't remember a whole lot about Zebulun and Naphtali. Again, because these areas, these tribes were not bastions of spiritual virtue, but of great vice. This was a very pagan area filled with Gentiles. And if you want proof of that, you see it in verse 15. Because in verse 15 it says, Jesus went beyond the Jordan to Galilee of the Gentiles. You could just skip over that and not really pay attention. A Jew would never have skipped over that. To a Jew, it's like, hold the phone here. To Galilee of the Gentiles is where he went. If you think Jerusalem was a dark, sketchy place, frowned upon by many, it had nothing upon this region. This is a region filled with exceptionally lost people. Many of them were Gentiles living exceptionally lost lives. In verse 16, it says that these were people sitting in darkness. It gets back to this picture of dark and light. It says these people were sitting in darkness. Verse 16 says they sat in a region that was overshadowed by death. Now that sounds pretty bad. That sounds like a bad situation. Now, the word sit comes up twice in that text. If you look at the verse, sit or sitting or sat. What does that suggest of these people? Well, it suggests that they weren't mobile. That as they sat in darkness, they either couldn't move or wouldn't move. As they sat in the darkness in the shadow of death, they couldn't or wouldn't move into a position of greater light. So, if light was ever to strike their face, if spiritual light was ever to strike their countenance, what had to happen? Well, the light had to come to them. Right? When you have a picture of someone sitting down and not moving, can't move, won't move, what has to happen? If they're to receive some nutrients or benefit or fellowship or what have you, well, it has to arrive to them. And in verse 16, we see that that's just what happened when Christ entered in. When he walked on in, the light had arrived to people who weren't going to him. This is a greater picture of all of our salvation. Jesus shows up, sent to those who otherwise would not travel to him, who sit in darkness. Verse 16 says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of shadow of death, light has dawned. Those words written by Isaiah were written 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled them to the T. Do you get that? 700 years before, 700 years before Jesus ever walked the face of the earth in the flesh, in the incarnate Christ, 700 years before, words were recorded about what he would do when he showed up. And guess what happens? This is just what he does in Matthew 4. The people sat in darkness, seen a great light. Upon those who sat in this region, Zebulun and Naphtali, shadow of death, light has dawned upon them. Again, Isaiah had prophesied this would be the case, that this light would come. Now, Jesus liked the phrase light. He would refer to it often in his words. In John 8, he makes a claim about himself. 
he claims this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. With that said, one question remains, how would people respond? So he goes to the people, he goes to people sitting down in the darkness, in this shadow land, so to speak, spiritual death hanging all about them. The light shows up. How do you think they're going to respond? How do you think they're going to respond to that? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But for the moment, let's see what he did following his arrival. Verse 17, from that time forth, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, the very first word that Jesus said at the start of his ministry was a word that no one likes to hear. The very first word that comes out of his mouth at the start of his public ministry is the word repent. It's a word that no one in Zebulun and Naphtali, no one in Capernaum expected or wanted. Word people in our own culture don't necessarily expect want. Repent. You know, repent when you think about it, it's a much harder word. When you hear the word repent, if someone says repent, it's a much harder word on the ears and on the heart than a word like, I don't know, believe or have faith or grace or what have you. Now, these are all biblical concepts. And yet, the word he chooses here is repent. You know, I've been in church environments, I don't know, I guess all my life. I've encountered a whole lot of churches like Faith Presbyterian Church. Have you ever seen a Faith Presbyterian Church? How about Grace Presbyterian Church? I've encountered several Grace Presbyterian churches. In fact, we are part of Grace Presbytery here in South Mississippi. Faith Presbyterian, Grace Presbyterian. I tell you this, I have never once, not once, not in my life, driven down the street and encountered Repent Presbyterian Church. I'll leave it to your judgment as to why that may be. With that said, in verse 17, that's the first word out of his mouth. It's the first word, the first word that inaugurates his public ministry. There's got to be something instructive about that. There's got to be something instructive. You see, if the people of Zebulun and Naphtali and Capernaum and Jerusalem and anywhere were to have hope for the future, it must involve some form of repentance over the past. It must involve some acknowledgement and turning from sin. Those of you who have been Christians for a long time, have you ever known true faith, true saving faith that was devoid of any repentance? I would say no. At least I know I never have seen this. Any credible faith that anyone is ever going to have, any credible faith for one's salvation must involve some recognition of what you need to be saved from, of the sin that leads to death. Repentance is part and parcel to a saving faith. Why would, at Christmas time, we're talking about the birth of a Savior, right? The birth of a Savior. We all got that. A Savior has come. Well, here's the thing. That Savior is only going to matter to you if you have something that you think you need to be saved from. You get that? You'll look into the manger and all you'll ever see is a cute baby. If someone tells you the Savior is born, you'll go, "Uh uh-huh. It won't resonate. It won't mean anything to you if you don't think you have anything you need to be saved from. And that's why he went to Capernaum. That's why he went to Zebulun and Naphtali and he opened with the word, repent. Because in order to turn to him as a savior, and not just the miracle man, in order to turn to him as a savior, they needed to understand that they had something that they needed to be saved from. Now, with that said, if you had asked a first century Jew what they needed to be saved from, in one word, what would the answer have been? Rome. That's right. You walk into first century Israel, you know, you're knocking on the doors, the lintel of the doors, and they invite you in and so forth, and you ask that question, what do you need to be saved from? What are they going to say? 
They're going to look around. They're going to point to the centurion who's marching down the street. and They're going to say, that guy. I need to be saved. We need to be saved from Rome, from the Roman Empire, from the foot, the boot of oppression that's upon us. In first century Israel, when the Messiah showed up, the Savior of mankind, the one that had been promised for centuries, when he showed up, part of the reason they rejected him was because they were looking for a Savior from something else. They were looking to be saved, not from sin, but from Rome. And when he didn't do what they expected or wanted him to do, they killed him. You understand this? They misunderstood. Scripture 700 years earlier said, this is what the guy's going to do. And he shows up and he does just that. And you think, well, certainly they'll recognize it and see that. And some did. Remember the old man Simeon? He looks at this baby and he recognizes this is the consolation of Israel. This is the promised one. But most people throughout Jesus' entire ministry, they didn't get it because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. They had a Messiah in their hearts and minds, and it wasn't that guy because he wasn't living up to their false expectations. There's a danger in the first century Israel and 21st century North America. There's a danger for assigning the wrong expectations and the wrong characteristics and the wrong attributes upon the Messiah. Don't look at the manger this Christmas time and see him wrongly, but see him as he is presented to us in Scripture. Now, since we're a week away from Christmas, let me just park here for a moment and explain one part of this a little bit better. Do you recall, Christmas time, do you recall what the angel said to Mary right before the birth of Christ? Well, he said a few things, but among the things he said was this. He says, Mary, 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 you will bring forth, you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for, and this is the salient part, for he will save his people from their sins. The name, the birth, the incarnation, the things we celebrate at Christmas time, the angel married them up 100% to the reason he showed up to begin with, to his mission to save people from sin and death. That's why he came. Mary, you shall call this child's name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever sinned? Oh, I heard someone say yes. Well, you get a gold star. That's right. All of us have sinned more times than we can count. You know the drill. If I asked, said, here's a piece of paper, write down everything wrong you did just this past week or this past month. Two things. A, you run out of space. And B, you couldn't even remember it all. You couldn't even remember it, let alone across the scores of your entire lifetime. You might not recall all the things that you've done wrong, but there is one who does. There's one who does, and he is holy, and he's righteous, and he is just. And all of that spells bad news for you if you appear before him caked in your own sins. Are there any consequences for sin? Do you think God does this? He like goes, well, you know, you're pretty awesome. You know, let's see, good, bad, well, you know, more good than bad. Come on in. The water's fine. And the sins, don't worry, you know, we got a Hoover vacuum or a broom. We'll sweep them into some closet, and that's not any more concern. Is that how God works? Heavens no. Heavens no. He can't work that way. If he's just, he has to deal with sin. That's the bad news. Why? Because you're a sinner. So am I. We all are. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. Not time out in the corner. Not, you know, the year in purgatory. Death. That's the wages of sin. Now, you might argue that. You might say, well, that's not fair. I mean, come on. I'm a good person. My dog likes me. Grandma likes me. Why wouldn't God like me? Right? Well, again, you're measuring yourself by yourself, and that's faulty thinking. 
God measures us on the basis of perfection. And dear heavens, that's scary because we're not perfect. But, but, even as that is a huge problem to us, the great solution, the great hope that we have is what we see in today's text. That God looked down upon broken people like you and I, sinful people who have done all manner of things wrong, and he says, in order to save you and spare you from the consequences and the wages of what you've done wrong, I will take my only begotten son and put him in the place of my wrath, that he will die so that you can live. The gospel is a picture of substitution. It's a picture of guilty people receiving grace and freedom and forgiveness and a perfect innocent one paying our price, paying the price. And on Calvary, that's exactly what happened. On Calvary, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And that's what the angel says. You'll call this child's name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. Not by snapping his fingers, not by doing a funny dance, not by doing miracles. He will do it by letting his own blood pour out on Calvary. Because that is the only thing your sins are so egregious that there's nothing else in the known universe that can pay for them except that one thing, the blood of God shed for thee. If you ever attempt to think of sin as like this trifling deal, like, not a biggie. I got my pets in, you got your pets in. That's not the way God looks at these things. Newsflash. That is a horrible idea to think that sin is something small. It is so big and so significant that there's nothing that can sponge it away except the very blood of the God who formed you to begin with. Don't think sin is small. Don't think sin is trifling. And when you look in the manger, don't just see a cute baby, but see someone who came to set you free by ultimately dying in your place. Again, Christmas is the first paver stone on Christ's long walk to the cross. In order to understand Christmas right, you have to understand the fullness of Christ's atoning work. And that's why when he shows up, the very first word out of his mouth is the word repent. Jesus was telling them in a word, in a word, that if they did not see their sin as a problem, then they would not see him as their solution. They would not see him aright. All they'd see him is the miracle man. And for a lot of people, that's all Jesus is, even in this day. Do you know how many people are praying to Jesus right now for wealth and health and prosperity, looking for him to be the miracle man, and the sin is nowhere on their radar? It is a vast swath of the visible Christendom. With that said, I want you to know something else in verse 17. That's the second thing out of Christ's mouth. He says, repent. That's the first thing. But then he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He comes to a place that is as dark as dark can be. And he says, I have something exciting to share with you. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what do you think that phrase means? What is this kingdom? Well, let's talk about it before we wrap up here this morning. You know, if you were to look one chapter earlier in Matthew, if you had flipped back to, I don't know, Matthew chapter 3, you'd notice something interesting. In Matthew 3... We've just studied the first recorded words here of Jesus in Matthew 4. Well, in Matthew 3, you get the first recorded words of John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 2. So John the Baptist, his first words come one chapter earlier. What do you think, I don't know, what do you think John said? What? Repent. The first words assigned to John the Baptist are the very same thing that Jesus says was his first words one chapter later. The exact same 
thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wonder, when the two most awesome, holy, righteous men ever walked the face of the earth, one of which is divine, say the exact same thing, maybe it's just me, but it's possible that what they say is really, really important. Repent, we've talked about that, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? You know, if, if a man were to fall down or be trapped, I don't know, some uh, soldier falls down, he's trapped in some dark, distant valley, those who love him or care for them, you know, might send someone in to go rescue, rescue him and, and bring him back to us. Their love for him results in the rescue of him. Now, there's something different with regards to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is on a rescue mission, but it's not just to rescue. The distinction is he is also here to redeem. Now let me explain that briefly. If you have a man who rescues another man from some valley in the far off fields or mountains or what have you, he's there for the guy. He doesn't care anything about the valley. Once he gets the guy home, he won't think about the valley again. Christ's intention is different. Christ's intention is to rescue and to redeem and reconcile everything that he touches, all of creation. And when Christ says that the kingdom of heaven's at hand, it's a reminder that this light which he brought would transform everything that it touched. Christ was there on a rescue mission, yes, but the light that he brought would affect everything, everything within the created realm. Christ's presence in time would transform the entire globe. That's what light does. Light transforms. Light transforms the darkness. Think about it. If you go into a darkened room, completely pitch black room, you can't see anything. That's problem number one. There's no context, no contour. There's nothing. There may be objects there. You can't discern them. You don't know where they're at spatially. You've got no ability to, to relate to the world around you. Light, even a dim light, transforms that environment completely. It enables you to see things you otherwise could not see. It enables you to navigate in ways you otherwise could not navigate. Now picture a light so bright that it dispels every last shadow in the room where everything is completely illuminated. That's the sort of light that Christ came to bring. Light gives us vision that we otherwise don't have. It gives us direction we otherwise wouldn't take. You think about in the Psalms, what does God say about his word? He says, my word is a lamp unto your feet. My word provides vision and guidance for you. Well, guess what? In John, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. If that book, that word was a lamp and a light to Old Testament peoples, then in the New Testament when Christ came and that word was made flesh and dwelt amongst the people, how brighter did it shine? How brighter did it shine? That's what Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and I transform everything that I touch. Now, would the light be popular? We asked that question earlier, and we know the answer is no. A lot of people don't want transformation. Or if they want it, they want it on their terms. And so the light came, and the saddest part is that the light came to darkened world, to people sitting in the darkness, in the shadow of death. A light came, the brightest light they would ever see. The word of God was made flesh, dwelt among his people. And you know through the hardness of their hearts what so many of them did? Well, they rejected it. And they rejected him. Now, Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew it. In John 3, he said this. He says, this is their condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus knew that spiritually flatlining, fallen, dead, and sinners prefer the shadows. You know, in the final days when Jesus returns, do you remember what those enemies of Christ are going to do at that time? Do you remember what they do? 
They try to call down rocks to cover them that they might hide from the light of his countenance. They prefer the darkness. Spiritually flatlining people, that's their desire. They might not frame it in those terms, but they frame it through their deeds. But not everyone will reject that light, and not everyone rejected it who he came to. In fact, many responded. Many responded wherever he went, and many responded across the centuries since. You know, some of us, as we close this morning, some of us are just tired of living in, in darkness. Some of us are tired. The news cycle alone, the past you know, few years, it's dim, it's dark, and some of us are tired of living in the darkness. Some of us are tired of breathing in the ash of this diseased and dying, decaying world. Some of us are tired of, of living in the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us long for the brightest of lights, especially at Christmas. For those who do, this is the message. This Christmas time throughout the year, this is Christ's message. I am the light. I'm the light you're seeking. I'm the light you need. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. Through all the illumination that we have, Jesus is the light that the whole world needs this December, this week, this Christmas. And so we can pray as we close that his light would shine far brighter than all others that we might consider this Christmas time and the season to come. Let me pray for us. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.